a little bigger turnout than I expected this morning. I'm happy to see some of you managed to come out on the long weekend. If you're anything like me, you like to get as much in on a long weekend as possible and then stay up all night listening to fireworks. Um, if you want to turn with me this morning, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. We're going to be in John chapter 13, carrying on, verses uh, 21 to 38. says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The reading of God's word. Today's passage is broken down into three sections, and I can't think of a better way to go through it than in that order. The reason being, there are really almost three little stories going on. The first of which is the prediction of the betrayal of Judas. And this is the last time he's with the 12 disciples, the second where Jesus issues a new commandment for the other disciples, and the third where he predicts the denial of one of his disciples, Peter. And as we look at the first section of scripture, it starts out with Jesus being troubled in spirit. In the Greek, it literally means deeply agitated 
Jesus, of course, knew that Judas was to betray him and was the only one who knew. We get another real sense of Jesus' humanity when we see him pour his heart out in a verse like this. Jesus, who had discipled Judas for, by scholars' estimates, three to three and a half years, was aware that Judas was going to betray him shortly. Judas, who was not only witness to the miracles of Jesus, who was not only the keeper of the money, but had been personally ministered and discipled for the last three years, was about to backstab Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus, knowing this, was troubled. I have to imagine that the Lord Jesus felt the savage attack on his heart, just the same as you and I when we were about to be betrayed. And I know what you're thinking, or maybe some of you have already checked out, but didn't Jesus know that this was going to happen all along? Like, what's with the sudden agitation? I think while Jesus was fully God and fully man while he was on this earth, we do recognize that there are certain aspects of his divinity that maybe weren't laid aside, but just weren't made fully aware at all times. We see in Matthew 24, 36, when Jesus is talking about heaven and earth passing away, he says, no one knows about that day or the hour, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So we know that when Jesus was on this earth, there were things that were, for back, perhaps lack of a better word, withheld from his knowledge. I have kids, I have four boys, and I taught them different things at different times of their life. So when they were very little, as some of you know, you, you teach them, you know, to buckle their own seatbelt, and when they're like five or six, maybe you get them riding their bikes. And then when they're a little older, you know, you get them mowing the lawn. Hopefully they're strong enough. And, uh, and then, you know, when they were a little older, I, I, I did the talk with them. But I did each of these things when they were ready for it. And I'm, I'm an imperfect father, I'll, I'll say that. But I did wait until each of them were ready. And I would have to assume that even though we do not know much about Jesus' young life, that maybe when he was five years old, for example, he probably wasn't fully aware of the brutal crucifixion that was to come. But if you look at the start of this chapter, there's a very interesting opening in John 13.1. It says, It was now just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. So regardless of what stance you have on him laying aside parts of his divinity, it, be clear, it becomes clear that right now he's fully aware of what's about to happen to him. And an analogy of this is what I was thinking about. Sometimes at a funeral, if you've been to a, a funeral where they've, where they've done this, you know, you, the pastor gives his message and, and then there's a eulogy and then, you know, they do the slideshow and some songs, that kind of thing. And then afterwards, sometimes they have an open mic where anyone who wants to come up and say a memory or a little story or something about the deceased can come up. And I've been in those before, you know, because you have like a few people standing on the stage, on the stairs, they're waiting to come up and there's somebody at the mic and, and you're fine, you know, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And then it's your turn, you know, and you're the next one and you're walking up and your blood starts to rush and your face gets red and you come all emotional. It, like for me, it's like when the song was ending and I was walking up here. 
And, uh, and I think that's what happened with Jesus. You know, yes, he knew this was all going to happen, but not only was he about to be betrayed, but right now he was going to, you know, identify his betrayer and confront him. If you don't think Jesus is aware of our emotions and feelings, we couldn't be more wrong. We have a Savior who understands what we go through. In the second half of verse 21, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And it's a bit funny when we look at the scriptures because we have the whole context of everything that has been written. But... Um, I'm sure there's some of you who've read it and you're like, it's, it's Judas, right? You know, like, it's Judas. But they, nobody had any idea. And he didn't stand out to them any more than anyone else. And I, I don't know if you remember, but just a few chapters back, Judas' heart is made clear in chapter 12. It says, Then Mary took out a pint of expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray him, asked, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Judas did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to take what was put into it. But no, Judas had them all fooled. And each of them, instead of look at themselves, they all wondered, who is he talking about? And John goes on to say in verse 23, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And if you remember a few Sundays back, Andrew explained, you know, like we don't, they weren't sitting at a table. They were probably like laying against the table like this. And so if you can imagine, John was, was there right next to Jesus and would have just said, who, who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this morsel to after I've dipped it. And he dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And we don't know how loud Jesus said it. And how, like, how loud did he say, it's the one I give this morsel to. But that was his answer. And even with that direct act of an answer, the disciples still did not know, because immediately after, John says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table said this to him. Knew, or sorry, knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And this might be the clearest depiction of how easy it is to fool someone who is close to you. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Nobody has an idea who it is. Peter asked John to ask Jesus who it is. And Jesus answers, it's the one I give this morsel to. And then he says, what you must do, do quickly. And the 11 disciples, handpicked by Jesus, directly trained and discipled by him, witnessed to miracles, educated by direct contact with the God-man, he says to the one I give this morsel to and hands it to Judas and says what you must do, do quickly. And they have no idea why he said this. And perhaps you've been in a betrayal in your life and 
maybe it was a spouse or a coworker or a close friend. And after the betrayal comes out, all of the things over the last days and weeks and months start to come clear. It's like, oh, right, I see why they did this. I see what happened here. But when you're going through it, you're completely blind to it. And it, maybe others around you, friends, they, they might even see it and maybe even telling you, but because you, you trust this person, you believe this person, you, you love this person, you could never believe that they would betray you. And that's how Judas was. Judas had them all fooled. And it's kind of scary to think in today's context of, of our church that there could be some sitting next to you week after week after week that are never been truly saved. And you'll notice it doesn't say all of the disciples except Peter and John, or all of the disciples except John, but it says no one at the table knew why he said this. Not even one of them could believe that Judas would betray them. Even John, who we know captured in 12.6, said Judas did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to take what was put into it. So after the fact, all of this was revealed, and John even captures it. But when it's happening right in front of their eyes, they did not understand. And you, can, I, you and I might say, well, we would have figured it out. We would have been, it's, it's Judas, right? But I don't think so. I think we would have been just as clueless and in disbelief. Now, exactly what went on when Jesus gave him the morsel and Satan entered Judas, I don't really understand. A little bit of the whole aspect of free will versus predetermination comes into play. Because there are some that will say that Judas' human body was used to play out the work of God. And I'd have to say that is correct. All things are orchestrated by God. But there is a reality that Judas, even though he was in the close circle of the disciples, had not been called by God. Until God intervenes to call or draw someone to himself, they will remain corrupted and deceived. That's why God is the one who grants repentance. It is not in Judas because God had not granted him the option. And once granted, it is still an option to choose or reject God, but without true free will, we cannot and will not. If one does choose God and believe on Jesus Christ, God has granted that path. In John 6:44, Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him, who sent me, draws him." This is also made clear in the Old Testament. A clear example of free will can be seen in Pharaoh. In Exodus 7:2-3, God says to Moses, "Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh." and that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did he harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? And I think the answer is yes, both are true. Pharaoh's heart was hardened on his own and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When we see a verse like John 6:44, we realize everyone's heart, everyone's heart is hardened. And unless God steps in, in his sovereignty, and calls us to repentance, we are all shaking our fists at God. And when we see that the devil came upon Judas, Judas was already well on his way before this. He was selfish, ungrateful, unrepentant, uncaring, a thief, and a backstabber. 
all the while being in the very presence of the one who could have become his Lord and Savior. But Jesus had not become his Lord. In Matthew's account of the event, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus says, you have said so. Here we see that Jesus was not his Lord, just his Rabbi. And after three years of unrepentance, in the close company of Jesus, he was given over to Satan. And it's a stark reminder to the rest of us that we cannot sit in unrepentant sin forever. There is an unforgivable sin. And it's not murder or adultery or whatever the worst one in your mind is. The unforgivable sin is a lifelong decision of unrepentance. And each time the Holy Spirit calls you and you turn away from God and choose to sin, the call becomes quieter and quieter. And it's a very terrifying thing to think that you could harden your heart to the point where you no longer hear the call of the Holy Spirit. Judas had hardened his heart for over three years and now it was too late. We move to the second part of this passage. We see Jesus start to explain what will happen to him. In verse 31, it says, When he had gone out, so speaking of Judas leaving, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And I believe that with Judas' presence in the room, Jesus was refraining from completely sharing. And when the betrayer left, there was a release, and Jesus was free to share with his disciples. So what does he share? He shares that it has begun. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, and the chain of events that would lead to his glorification and ultimately the salvation of the world had been put into motion. And Jesus, with the betrayer gone, was fully free to express to his closest, dearest friends that he was about to be glorified. It must have been such a moment to realize that everything you've been preparing for is starting to come to fruition. All the time he spent teaching and preparing his disciples, all the crowds Jesus ministered to, all the people Jesus fed, all the people Jesus healed, even the people Jesus brought back to life. Yes, these events brought glory to God, but here all of it was about to wrap up into the culmination of his life's work here on earth. And what does that mean to the Father? Every single person to put their faith in Jesus Christ glorifies God as our forgiveness of sins, which could only be made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, screams to God be the glory. If you ever wanted your amen moment, Jerry, that, that was it. Yeah, there you go. For by this one man, death no longer had power over mankind. Because of his saving work on the cross, Jesus defeated death. And right here in this moment, he was sharing to the disciples, God will be glorified and God will glorify Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 33, little children, yet a while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And I think there are two things happening in that moment. The first being that Jesus was aware his disciples did not fully understand what was to come. Let's be honest, they didn't even understand why Judas had left. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to be crucified. They probably didn't really get that it was going to happen right away. 
And as such, he was talking to them like little children. And the second is that they would be scattered. They would be without their master, and he was caring for them as little children. And in typical Jesus fashion, he was trying to prepare them for what was going to come to pass. He had compassion on them as he knew that they would be tested, and they would be scared, and they would fail. And they could not come with him, for he was off to do the will of the Father. As I said earlier, he was going to do what only he, the perfect Son of God, could do. And they could not come with him. He was preparing them for it before it happened. And then he gives them a new commandment. Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. This new commandment did not replace the old commandments. In fact, if you read back in Leviticus, which I know everyone loves reading Leviticus, but in chapter 19 it says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here we see continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. So while it didn't replace the Old Testament commandments, it did supersede, you know, the Ten Commandments. And if you think of the Ten Commandments' treatment of your fellow man, they were very limited to not doing certain things. But when Jesus taught, he always expanded on them. You, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, if I say if anyone looks upon his neighbor's wife with lust, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Or you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Well, I say if a man says, you fool, to his fellow man, he's committed murder in his heart. So for Jesus, now to issue a new commandment of loving one another, it really wasn't a new commandment, but it did essentially wrap up Old Testament law. You wouldn't murder someone you love. You wouldn't tell lies about someone you love. You wouldn't cheat on someone you love. You wouldn't let someone you love go hungry or cold or without clothes. By telling them to love one another, all people will know you are my disciples, it would have been in stark contrast to the Pharisees of the day, which may have appeared to be keeping Old Testament law, but their hearts were far from God. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, Pharisees! You pay tithes of mint, rue, and every herb, but you disregard justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So for Jesus to say we are now to love one another, it's just a continuing teaching of how Christians are to treat each other and others. And I feel that this is kind of a failure of the church, and I'm not referring to like North Peace MB, but the church is a whole of believers. Can you imagine if people talked about Christians like this? If when people talked about Christians, they were like, wow, I can't believe how much they loved on me. And not just a few isolated cases, but in general, you heard how much Christians love people. In Acts chapter 2, regarding the early church, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. A sense of awe came over everyone, and the apostles performed many wonders and signs. All of the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they shared with anyone who was in need. 
With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts to break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to the number who were being saved. This might be the clearest depiction of what sharing the gospel, listening to the Holy Spirit, and loving our brothers and sisters can do to change a culture. We live in a culture in North America where many of us believe that our nation is Christian and the rights of the people that are built on a large part on the foundation of Christian beliefs are rights we should always possess. We believe the laws put in place to protect the unborn, marriage, family, children, freedom should always be there and it's our right to have them. And as these rights are stripped away by changing views, cultural pressure, the whole cancel culture, instead of viewing it as an opportunity to show love to the lost and the broken, we get angry and try instead to force our opinion on others. When the shift of the moral majority starts to slide, we should see it as a need to tell others about Jesus. When we're more concerned about the comfort we enjoy living in North America than the souls of the lost, it comes through loud and clear. And what it does is isolate us believers as right-wing, bigoted, hard-headed, narrow-minded, old-fashioned, holier-than-thou snobs. When we are called by Jesus to be loving and all the trying to hold on to the rights and freedoms that we have while forgetting the eternal condition of the lost will do nothing to close that gap. In Romans we read, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Furthermore, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So if this is the state of the lost, no amount of trying to rein them in with laws and rules and logical arguments is going to help. Unless the Holy Spirit changes their hearts, their eyes are blind to the truth and their ears are deaf to hear it. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with a gentleman at work and he, he's, he's a friend, although just from work, and I thought he'd be a kindred spirit. And so we were starting in on a conversation, you know, light talk, taxes, government, that kind of thing. And uh, it became clear early on that we were not kindred spirits, that he was on one side and I was on the other. And um, I had an option. I could dig my heels in and try to defend my argument or I could love on this individual. And let's be honest, it doesn't matter how compelling my arguments, how, how good and undefensible, like I, I could come up with the perfect argument, you know, why government overstep is bad and why, you know, taxing us uh, on things that shouldn't be taxed is bad and, and why, you know, vaccinations maybe isn't right. Um, Anyway, I, I could have dug in, and in the end, it wouldn't have done one darn tootin' bit of difference. He would still be of the same mindset. Um, we wouldn't be any closer. 
he'd actually probably have a little disdain for me in his eyes. And uh, I sure wouldn't be showing the love of God, would I? And as I, uh, as I did finally start to clue into the triggers, you know, his temperature was raising, uh, I started listening to what he was saying. Because had I actually been listening, he I would have picked up, you know, he'd recently moved to Victoria. And I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but being around a lot of Victorians might have an impact on what you think about things. Um, he also had an elderly grandfather. He was extremely concerned of, uh, with getting COVID and what it might do to him. And so finally, this Mennonite figured it out that I should love on this guy. And I actually apologized and I backed off. And as I'm leaving the site, he gave me a call and he said, hey, I'm sorry, I was heated up a little bit. Uh, things have been going on at work and, and I'm, I'm sorry for what, how I responded. It turns out as we read in Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I don't think when Jesus told his disciples that people would recognize them by their love, that he meant by their love of being right. But this is what a lot of the Christian right seems to be leaning towards. And the chasm between us and the unsaved gets wider and wider the more we forget that it's the Holy Spirit that changes hearts and the gospel gets spread by Christians sharing it. As we move to the third portion of today's scripture, we see an interaction between Peter and Jesus. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And here we see Peter, of course, who has to interject. Peter, who had to get John to ask who was going to betray Jesus, who in Corlin's sermon last week didn't want Jesus just to wash his feet, but also his head and his hands. Peter wants to know where Jesus is going, and he just can't hold himself back. And Jesus responds with, you can't come with me now. We know that Jesus was fully aware of what was going to happen to him. He was in full control. He was going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And we know that Jesus was aware that what he was going to do, that they couldn't be a part of. He was saying, it's my turn now. You're not ready. I'm going to become a substitute for even your sins, Peter. Peter, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you won't be strong enough to come with me. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And that's one of those passages that most churchgoers should know fairly well, and even non-churchgoers know. You know, it's, it's that scene that you've even seen in older movies, you know, where that's uh, the denial of Jesus three times by Peter. And every time we hear it, we think, Peter, how could you fall like this? And there's a reality. Every one of the disciples fell away. In Matthew's account, we see in chapter 26, when Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me because of this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So while Peter's denial is famous, all of the disciples fell away. And we today do the same thing every time we choose to sin. Every time we have the choice to follow Christ 
or follow what we want. Every time we have the option to follow Christ or follow what we want, and we choose to follow what we want to do, we deny Christ. Every time we have a chance to care for our fellow Christian or to turn aside to our own needs, we can deny Christ. When you feel the nudge to talk to that new person in church, but instead you run out to your car as quick as you can after the service, you're denying Christ. When you're prompted to talk to the person in front of you in the checkout line, and instead you read the magazines, you're denying Christ. When you feel the Holy Spirit telling you to volunteer for VBS and you don't sign up. Do you know that she was praying for me this week? <laughs> and we didn't talk about this, just so you know. When you feel that maybe you shouldn't share that angry post on social media, but you send it anyway, you deny Christ. When you open that website you know you shouldn't go to, you deny Christ. And I could literally make this list go on for an hour. I'm sure I could have people from the crowd throwing things out. But most of these were things that came to my mind. Ways I've denied Christ. And there's a difference between Peter's denial of Jesus and ours. Peter did not yet have the Holy Spirit. Because we see things change dramatically for him once he had the Holy Spirit upon him. The disciples received the Holy Spirit in John 20... Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We know from the breakfast account that Jesus questioned Peter these three times. Jesus asked him, Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Meaning, would you even give up your fishing job for me? And Peter says, You know I love you. And the Lord asked three times, and he answered three times. And Jesus said, please feed my lambs. Peter was restored in his spirit immediately, put down his fishing net, and returned to Jerusalem, waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The real restoration is in the spirit. And I read the following about Peter I thought I'd share. After Jesus descended to heaven, Peter strengthened the brothers and sisters, had them wait for the Holy Spirit, led a prayer, organized a meeting to elect the apostle to replace Judas Iscariot? These were all Peter's doings. Peter recovered completely. He bravely preached to over 3,000 people. He could sleep peacefully in prison. And in the end, he was brave being crucified as a martyr. This is the same Peter that Jesus knew would deny him. So while we may deny Jesus today, we don't exactly have the same defense. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And as such, we're called to love one another. We're called to listen to the Holy Spirit. We're called to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. So as I wrap up today's message, what does this mean to us practically? And I'd pose these more as questions for you to ponder rather than a step-by-step -step things to do. And I know what you're thinking, just give us the list, all right? But these are the questions I ask. Number one, am I a follower of Christ? Have I actually chosen to put off the world and pick up my cross, no matter what the cost? Or am I a Judas, just fooling those around me? Am I getting together with the saints, 
And I don't just mean attending church on Sundays. I mean, who do I care about? Who is my friend group? Who am I developing relationships with? Number three, what am I doing in the world? Does anything I do on a day-to-day basis resembling building the church of God? Or is it building the house of self? Number four, am I loving to others? Like, do I care about the needs of other believers? Am I concerned with the lost? Am I concerned with the hurting? Number five, where am I spending my time and my resources? Is someone, if someone did an audit of my life and my spending, they say I'm Christian-minded? Number six, where's my thought life? Is it more concerned about safety, comfort, social media, or is it focused on following Christ and telling others about him? And the last, am I following Christ or am I denying him? When I have choices day to day, which means might, might mean no to some of what the world offers, am I saying no to the world or am I denying Christ? Let's pray. Lord, there's so much to take in on this sermon. And there's, it's just an unbelievable weight sometimes when we read how the disciples ended up, most of them dying for you, Lord. And when we look at our lives, it's, it's pretty easy. We can go to work, we can go to school, we can go to events, we can go to church with almost no persecution, almost nothing there where we have to say, yeah, I'm Christian, and this is what I believe. And Lord, I pray that you would put it on our hearts, that we would share with the lost, that we would be caring for those around us who do not have the eternal safety that we know lord when times are tough and we're going through things we know that our eternity is locked there are people around us that are going through things they're hurting every single day and they don't have that they don't have any hope i pray lord that you would touch our hearts give us hearts and minds for the lost and give us strength to uh pick up our cross daily and follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.